Welcome to the About, From, and With podcast, a podcast showcasing speech-language pathologists' journeys to finding their passion and purpose in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Danica Pfeiffer. In each episode, we'll learn about, from, and with SLP clinicians and researchers as they share their experiences, advice, and expertise. Welcome back to the About, From, and With podcast. Thanks for spending part of your day listening to this episode. If you're not already, be sure to follow me on Instagram at danicapfeiffer.slp to stay in the loop about the podcast. Today I'm excited to share with you an interview with Dr. Teresa Girolamo. Teresa is a postdoctoral fellow in the Cognitive Neuroscience of Communication at the University of Connecticut and an incoming faculty member at San Diego State University in the School of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. Teresa and I talk about her recent journey on the academic job market, specifically her experiences applying to CSD faculty positions at research-intensive universities. Teresa's research involves language impairment in individuals who are autistic and those with developmental language disorder or specific language impairment, as well as equity and research in higher education. Teresa also serves on CAPS's DEI committee, the Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus Executive Board, and the Universitas 21 Global Autism Research Network, which aims to advance diversity and equity in autism research. Teresa has so much wisdom to share, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Enjoy. Teresa, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your job search. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start with you kind of telling us a little bit about you growing up before you started your academic journey. Sure. So when I grew up, I was definitely not in an academic family at all. My father dropped out of college because he got what I realize now was a fairly low paying salaried position. But in his family, like that was great. So when I went to college, I loved it. And it was also definitely a new experience for me. Between one thing and many others, I ended up becoming a special education teacher for high school age students who are all autistic and who range from being minimally verbal to having language impairment and using things like phrasal speech. And along the way, I kept on finding myself asking about how I could better characterize their language abilities with the aim of translating that knowledge into supports that they and their families told me they wanted for themselves. And that led me into pursuing a doctoral degree at the University of Kansas in child language, where I worked with Dr. Mabel Rice and Dr. Stephen Warren. Awesome. Very cool. That's great that you had that kind of hands-on experience in the classroom to bring into CSD. I'm sure that was really helpful. How did you decide what to do after getting your PhD? I knew that for the research goals I had and the questions that I had, the most probable thing for me to do that would make sense was to pursue a postdoctoral fellowship. And because I had been on a T32 postdoctoral fellowship as well as on an R01 grant as a graduate research assistant, uh, I prioritized finding postdoctoral fellowships that would give me the greatest amount of independence. So for me, that meant looking for a T32 fellowship since I knew I wouldn't have a publication record to support me being successful in obtaining an F32. 
So I ended up applying to a couple of different postdoctoral fellowships. One was with a researcher doing longitudinal modeling of outcomes in autistic individuals who are older, meaning adolescents and young adults. And I also ended up applying to the postdoctoral fellowship where I am now, which is a T32 in the Cognitive Neuroscience of Communication at the University of Connecticut. Perfect. And for those that are listening that are not familiar with academia, can you kind of explain what a T32 is and why it's attractive and why people like to do them? Sure. Okay, so the T32 is not the most inclusive postdoctoral fellowship because only U.S. citizens, I believe, and residents and folks who have a green card are eligible for this mechanism. If you're a postdoctoral fellow on an R01 grant, you don't have that same requirement, if I have that right. However, the T32 gives you the most amount of independence because quite literally, it is a training grant. So it's meant to develop you as an independent investigator versus one that is trying to, one where you have responsibilities, right, to a PI's lab. So in my case, I have a dedicated pool of research funding, and I think I have actually access to several pools of research funding for my own stuff. So I can continue building out my own line of research and I'm not obligated to work on anybody else's field of science, if you will. And that's really important as you're just getting established after you finish your PhD. And it's a nice opportunity to really get yourself off the ground and get yourself running before starting a faculty position. So that's great that you've had that opportunity. When did you decide during this postdoctoral fellowship that you wanted to go on the job market? I think a lot of people wonder, when is the right time? Mm-hmm. For me, the right time was as soon as I saw jobs uh, popping up on websites from Capsid to Indeed to Ashes job website that interested me, I thought, why not apply? I applied, I think, just like months after starting my postdoctoral fellowship. And as with many other candidates who graduated during the COVID-19 pandemic, we all know that many universities pulled jobs. So there was relatively little available as they were trying to figure out their budgets and how to deal with like an ongoing crisis. So when I saw jobs pop up that interested me, I thought, well, let me apply. And since it was my first time applying, I applied rather widely. At the same time, I didn't apply to any place where I would not have accepted an offer if the offer was right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Sometimes it's tempting when you see all of those posts <laughs> and you there. I feel like you can get sucked into this hole of just, oh, I need a job. So let me just apply because it's better than nothing. But I think it's really smart to try to narrow your options <laughs> down. <laughs> but you knew you wanted to find a position at an R1 institution. So can you explain a little bit about what R1 institutions are? R1 institutions are some designation, I think from like Carnegie Mellon, that are awarded a certain level of research funding, and it's supposed to be indicative of a certain level of research activity. And in full disclosure, I actually didn't end up applying only to R1 institutions. I applied to schools where I thought, hey, this is a teaching school, but I know this person here that has an R01 grant. So I thought about, for my own research goals, which institutions would likely have the research infrastructure to support researchers who do want to apply for larger scale grants. As for the school I ended up accepting an offer at, 
it is not an R1 institution. Uh, it's an R2 institution, San Diego State University. But as far as I can tell, the, the college or the school's speech, language, and hearing sciences has a fairly high-level research activity, including a joint T32 with UCSD with their doc program in communication sciences and disorders. Oh, great. Oh, great. So that's important, I think, to highlight is that you can, if you're looking for a research intensive place, it doesn't just have to be at an R1 institution. And you can find that in other kinds of institutions as well. So I'm glad you highlighted that. How did you figure out how much research time would be dedicated to your position? Because I think that's something when you first go on the job market, it's hard to figure out sometimes from each school how much time you'll be able to dedicate to research. So in my case, I was probably not the most diligent about trying to suss this out at each of my interviews. At some institutions, it was very clear that their priority was on research. And frankly, that was a little off-putting because then I wonder what happens to things about quality training and teaching. But that's another story for another day. (laughs) At San Diego State University, many of these expectations are extremely transparent because it is a unionized institution. So, uh, for example, they have to post their promotion and tenure guidelines publicly. And it is very clear what the expectations are for promotion and tenure because of that. So in some ways, I think probably my experience will be a little bit atypical since I know that oftentimes the expectations are not always transparent. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you might not know until you're in that last round of interviews and you have the opportunity to ask and get more details and sometimes maybe not even then. So That's something I think each institution, like you highlighted, it's a little bit different and they are not all very transparent about that, unfortunately. As you were looking for positions to apply to this year for going on the job market, what things were you looking for in the job ad? So when I was looking at job ads this past cycle, I found that they were all pretty standard and opaque. So if I happen to know somebody at the institution I would actually reach out to them first and say, what is it your department is looking for? Because no one is upfront about that. Um, (laughs) And it was really, really helpful to be able to talk to people directly to know, like, there is no way you're going to be a good fit for this position. For example, I know, like, if people were looking for a speech scientist, I could not pretend to be a speech scientist if I tried. Or if another institution was looking for not an assistant professor, right, in an open rank search, but for someone who studies like whatever at not the assistant professor level in a different research area, I thought, okay, that's probably not the best use of my time because there is no way I'm not going to be, there's no way I am going to be anything other than assistant professor if I apply to jobs. Right, right. You're just starting out. That makes a lot of sense. That's nice advice there to, if you know someone in the department, try to ask them. If you don't know someone in the department, I think something that I found helpful was asking around, asking mentors, asking people that might know somebody in that department and seeing if they have any idea of what the search committee is looking for. Because I think for a lot of people that are just going on the job market, we don't know a lot of people at a lot of different universities. So that can be another thing that I think can be helpful as well. Tell us about the process and how it unfolded once you started submitting your applications. 
The process varied quite a bit from place to place in terms of how fast institutions moved. One resource that I found to be helpful was The Professor is In. I ended up purchasing her book some time ago, and I found it to be useful. And my postdoc institution ended up buying me another book that I can't remember the name of. I can send it to you later. Also about academic interviews in the job market. And between those two things and then talking to friends, that was helpful. So the timeline varied quite a bit. I would apply and maybe not hear back at all or months later. Obviously, in those cases, I didn't move on to like screening or Zoom interviews. Um, Other places would respond pretty quickly, like within a couple to a few weeks. And after those interviews, I would typically hear back maybe like a few weeks to like a little over a month later about on-campus interviews. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, I wish there was more standardization across programs because that waiting period is really hard sometimes. (laughs) Just waiting and waiting. Can you talk a little bit about your first round interviews or your screening interviews and what those looked like? So first round screening interviews were all on Zoom and they were quick, ranging from 15 minutes to maybe like 30 minutes maximum. Okay. And I found that the questions were fairly standard and a mix of behavioral questions as well as one specific to speech language hearing, like how does your program or research, you know, speak to, you know, like clinical training or whatever. And they vary quite a bit in terms of how formal they were. There were some interviews where people very clearly had a standardized structure they were following. I think in terms of equity, that can be really good. And there were other interviews that were much more informal. And maybe that's how those departments are and that is what works for them. They almost gave me pause with, frankly, how informal some of the interviews were because I was thinking, this is whatever you want it to be. I know you have to get questions approved by HR. Right. (laughs) The way this interview is being run is I'm sitting here listening to, you know, explain to me what an R01 grant is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I had the same experience that they're they were really different from school to school. And I know a lot of preparation goes into getting ready to go on the job market, getting ready for these interviews. How did you prepare for those screening interviews? I would actually go through and make like a one pager. And it wasn't because I was going to sit there during an interview and read my one page summary but because it forced me to sit down and spend time on each department's website and, you know, Google and whatever, just to try and understand what they were working on, what the culture was like as much as they could, and what questions I had. And I'm actually developing that into a template to stick on my website to show, like, here are some typical interview questions that maybe you should think about beforehand. Here is how I prepared by trying to learn a little bit more about each department's mission and values and strategic planning and the faculty members. And that is what helped me. But I know there is no one right way to prepare for interviews. Many of my friends who are now like tenured faculty elsewhere said, oh, yeah, when I prepared for interviews, you know, you did a lot more work than I did. But (laughs) with the way my brain works, this is what helped me, I think, feel prepared going into each Zoom interview, knowing that it's such a short period of time. Oh, you had a lot of great advice in that going on the website and really trying to understand the department and what is important to them is really important to do before 
having these interviews. I think that's huge. And having some notes is great because especially with all of these screening interviews happening on Zoom, it's it's fine to have notes up, you know, have post-it notes, whatever system works for you to refer to. And I know for me, having some post-its next to my computer made me feel a little bit more calm too, if I just needed to glance over at something. So I think that's really smart. As you're kind of reflecting back on this, were there questions that you feel like came up pretty often in these first screener interviews that you started to prepare for? So many schools asked about how my programmatic research related to speech language pathology or to speech language hearing. A common one, of course, is tell us about your research. And right. I found that fewer schools asked about like teaching style and teaching philosophy, even though I have many thoughts and opinions on that. Um, And something they found was interesting is also not many of the maybe like 10 Zoom interviews I had asked about DEI, even though they all wanted a diversity statement. I think it's like the new trendy thing is to ask for one. And so I found that to be interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I don't think that I had many screening interview questions about that either, but it did come up for me in some universities in the next round interviews. Did you find that? Yeah, I I think like the one place I can remember that asked me about DEI was San Diego State University. And I think part of that is coming from the university strategic planning for building inclusive excellence. But I found it to be interesting because one, I'm not white. Two, most of the faculty interviewing me were white. And three, I could tell, like, no offense, like most of them hadn't thought DEI all the way through. So I don't know what they would have had to say about it. But it also makes you wonder, like, is this another way of just kind of being performative and saying, oh, listen, we care about diversity. So we're going to make you write the statement, but we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to send home the message that we care about this and screening our applicants. So it, it was interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting because we do spend a lot of time. I'm sure you did. I know I did sitting down and writing those statements. And it does feel like there should be some weight given to that, especially if they're saying it's a priority. Yeah, that is really interesting. I know that's an, that's something that's very important to you and your research as well and your teaching. So I think those are the kinds of things you when you go into this, I think it's easy to think, oh, I just need a job. But really, all these universities are not the same. And you will start to see things like that, where they value different things, or they're not, they're either really committed to certain issues, and they're actually practicing what they preach or not. And I think through these interviews, you can start to really gauge that. Yeah, and I think the latter, right, where if, if departments are not practicing what they preach, a term I heard for that that I love is called diversity dishonesty, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where you publicly affirm like Black Lives Matter, I stand in solidarity, stop Asian hate. But then you ask about like, what are you doing in day-to-day life? And right, it's like crickets chirping. Right, (laughs) right. I know for, as we're on this topic, I spoke to a few people that are going on the job market this fall recently. And they were asking me a lot about diversity statements and where to even start. Do you have advice for those that are trying to put their thoughts together and write their diversity statement and how to even just begin to put their thoughts on paper? 
I feel like this is probably not specific advice to diversity statements, but just to academic writing in general is just right. And I think just right to get your basic thoughts out because otherwise it's easy to just kind of put it off and feel totally overwhelmed. One suggestion I would have is to think about being succinct. I've edited a good number of people's job application documents, everything from assistant tenure track positions, postdoc fellowship applications to like administrator positions. And when I see very long kind of rambly woo woo diversity statements, I'm like, no, cut that out. I know you've (laughs) done more than this. Say a little bit more succinctly. Um, And then if anyone wants to see an example, like I've posted my diversity statement on my website. Yep. I will share that in the show notes for people that want to take a look. I think that's excellent. And it's so nice to have examples to go from and just see, because I think when you first start writing all of these documents, it's hard to know what it should look like. And especially if you haven't spent much time talking about that in your doc programs. Um, So it's really nice that you've decided to share your documents. I'm sure that's going to be really helpful for others. How about making it to the next round of interviews? So from the screening interview, you said for you, it was typically somewhere around a month-ish later that you heard about moving on to the next round of interviews. And so how did you prepare for those interviews? So after each of my Zoom interviews, of course, not knowing what would come next, I quickly took down notes to kind of debrief with myself with talking points or things that had stuck out to me. So I would update kind of that one pager with other notes, right? And then I ended up chatting to mentors and various people I knew who had recently been in the job market, some of whom were also chairing or serving on search committees for the cycle in which I applied to ask about what are the things you're looking for for an on-campus interview? And the icky thing I think, is that so much of it is about these subjective criteria where we talk about fit for a department. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of it is actually just kind of subject to bias, right? So what I heard from my mentors and friends is they wanted to see someone they could see themselves working with, someone they like, someone who is, quote unquote, a good fit, which I think is a problematic criterion. Um, What does that mean? (laughs) I know. I know. It's so bad. Um, And so I would just prepare my job talk, think about things that stuck out to me from the Zoom interview, and I would revisit each department's website to see if there was anything else that I missed, right, pre-Zoom interview, or if there was anything else that was new, like someone getting an award or, you know, NISLA getting an award or some type of activity that I would want to bring up. And then once I got the interview schedule for each institution, I would go through and more closely look at each individual um, that I was going to meet with or at each group of individuals I was going to meet with and prepare talking points. So kind of going through their bios on the website? Yes. Okay. Yes. Or just like program websites or even sometimes I think like program handbooks just to learn more, for example, about like unique joint PhD programs between universities. Yeah, that's great advice. The website these days, they are so they have so much information about these programs. It's a nice way to learn 
like you said, kind of what programs they have, because not all programs have the same master's, PhD programs. So that's a nice thing. And all the bios are there. The strategic plan for the department is there. I found that really helpful to see what kinds of things they emphasize in their strategic plan to see if those match things that I really value. And also, like you said, the the news. A lot of times there's kind of a news section or highlights of the department section where you can see what the students are doing, what the faculty are doing. And I think that speaks a lot to the department and what, again, what they value, what they're excited about, what they're celebrating, and are they supporting their faculty? Are they highlighting their successes? And I think that really can help you learn a lot about the department. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a, a big part of this is also preparing your job talk. So as you you were preparing your job talk for some of these more research intensive universities, what kinds of things were you really trying to be sure to highlight in your job talk? In my job talk, I wanted to highlight, and I'm sure everyone else says this too, the narrative of who you are as an early career researcher and be very clear about where you are going right? To show that on day one, when you show up, you will have ideas of what it is you're going to do. And you won't just kind of be sitting around like in your office trying to figure out what you're going to do next in terms of research, uh, research, teaching, and service. So in my job talk, I highlighted different research areas. And this is also on my website. And then I started giving this job talk to group of people, after group of people, to after group of people. I must have practiced my job talk upwards of like a dozen times and probably even more than that. And what was great is I was able to talk to folks from different backgrounds. So for example, people who focus on statistical learning and neuroimaging and applications of fMRI with infants, which is totally not something I do right, to people who work on developing diagnostic assessments for autism, to talking to people from developmental and clinical psychology, as well as linguistics. So he's able to really get a lot of feedback from people who differed in backgrounds, as well as in positions, again, including some who focused on running their own job searches at their own departments. And I found having participated in some of the ASHA programming to be really helpful because those were the people who I think helped save my job talk the most in that it was awful when I started. Um, one of them actually got a babysitter for her kid who was home from school because of COVID. Like he didn't have COVID, but I think they were worried about health issues and listened to me for two hours and gave me feedback. Wow. And I got this up from participating in Asha's MARC program, Mentoring Academic Research Careers and Pathways. Okay, great. I also participated in both of those. And I think they were excellent, especially during the job search process to get some advice from people that are not your main mentor. I think it's really nice to have that outsider perspective and to hear their experiences and get their advice. I totally agree with that. So as you were piecing it together, and it sounds like it was kind of revised over time, I, something you highlighted was really telling your story throughout. And so how did you do that with, ba with balancing the research that you had done previously and what you were doing now? I think for me, I had a hard time at first figuring out how to balance everything. Do you have advice about that? 
Yes. So first is if you can get your hands on other people's job talk slides, that makes a world of difference because it will show you there is no one right way to make a job talk. I've seen many different formats that have all worked for people who have, you know, great jobs. And the second piece of advice would be just make a job talk. It can be bad. Mine was awful. Um, I had people very politely tell me it was awful and then tell me how to fix it. And that's because it's easier to have a starting point, right? If you have nothing, then what are people going to give you feedback on? For myself, what I found to be helpful was one, taking people's feedback, not personally, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because my job talk was so bad in the beginning. I think I tried to make it chronological and it obviously didn't make sense. And multiple people told me this. And then I had an aha moment when actually my ASHA Pathways mentor said, okay, so what I'm hearing you talk a lot about is this. And that was like a theme, which is kind of like this equity and language piece And she said, why don't you make that run throughout when you talk about your different areas of research and how that's going to bring you forward to where you're going next. And that was great. But it took me a long time to decouple in my head that like my job talk did not have to look like other people's job talks. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, the feedback was not a personal criticism. It was more like constructive feedback because obviously people are sitting around for two hours with you on Zoom. They think you have something to offer and they're giving you feedback for a helpful reason. Yes, absolutely. I think that's good advice for being in academia across the board. (laughs) There's constant feedback and constructive criticism and not taking it personally, I think is a huge lesson to learn as early as you can. (laughs) Yeah. So a big part of that interview on campus is the job talk. What other kinds of things can people expect for that on campus or that second round, which might be virtual in in the COVID world? What can people expect for that interview? I had many. So this is, I think, well known, but on-campus interviews, whether on Zoom or in person, are typically all day long. So for myself, this meant when they were on Zoom, finding dog care for like my two dogs because they don't necessarily enjoy having mom on Zoom all day and they let me know with their voices. (laughs) Um, And I think folks can also expect to meet with a wide range of groups and with a wide range of individuals. So typically students, sometimes places would separate undergraduate from graduate students um, or masters from PhD students. Faculty, typically I would meet with like clinical faculty members with the search committee, with tenure line faculty members, with different types of administrators, whether it was like the dean of the college associate deans, depending on how the infrastructure was at each institution. And sometimes I would meet with pairs or with smaller groups of faculty members, depending on their areas of interest. It varied from institution to institution. I will put a plug out there, though, and maybe I'm I'm probably biased. So the school I accepted a position at was actually the best at structuring the all-day interview because they purposefully built in breaks. Yes, that's so important. (laughs) Built in breaks, and and then they sent me dinner. Oh, wonderful. That's even better. (laughs) Those things do really make a difference, though, because it's a long day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yes, a really long day. And I like how you highlighted all the different groups that you meet with. My experience was I would receive an agenda of the day, and that could have been a week in advance, sometimes two days in advance. It really varied. Is that your experience as well? Yeah. So I would typically get the interview schedules in about that same time frame, which sent me into like a mild state of panic for like interview prep. And I guess there's not much you can do about preparing to meet with each group other than having maybe a more generic set of talking points and adding on whatever is specific to that institution once you get it. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Did you face any challenges with going through the job search process? I know it's a marathon, really. (laughs) What challenges did you face, if any? The broadest challenge which I think is not specific to myself, but to everyone in the job market is being patient because you have to accept that you don't know what's going to happen. And I found that to be anxiety inducing. And I imagine this is the case for many like individuals who like to have a lot of control over the work that they're going to do, the work they're going to put out, how they're going to manage their time And that just doesn't happen on the job market. My friend, who is the department chair at the University of Washington, was chatting with me once and said, you know, Teresa, just have fun on the job market. And I was thinking, are you, are you, what? (laughs) I think when you're a full professor and a department chair at a top institution who has not been on the job market, right, facing entry into the profession or not, Um, It's easier said than done. But on the other side of it, I'm like, oh, I understand why he said that now. I should have had more fun on the job market, but I didn't. Um, (laughs) As for specific challenges, I actually encountered racism on an on-campus interview visit. And it was so interesting because I would not have heard about it had a faculty member from the department not called me and told me the things they said about me on, you know, in private. And these were things that the faculty said behind closed doors. And I won't go into those specifics, but when I was talking about this incident afterward with faculty from a wide range of universities, the provost at UConn, the executive vice chancellor for health affairs at the University of Missouri and elsewhere, They were all appalled. And as one of them pointed out to me, they said, you know, and these are the filtered thoughts that they had. This wasn't even like the worst of what they were thinking. And this came from a very good researcher who was white, you know, at like a top CSD institution. But what I found, I guess, to also be not heartening because it ultimately still harmed me as an early career scientist, because if you don't get a job offer, that's bad. And if you don't get a job offer because of racism, that's also bad. What I found to be heartening was the provost at UConn actually said, you know, I'm going to talk with higher ups at this school to let them know they have a problem in this department, because this is a you know, someone I've known for years and who I've worked with on DEI issues. So they know exactly where I stand and how I work with others. And when I spoke to the executive vice chancellor for health affairs at the University of Missouri, he actually got together with the dean of class and with an executive director to see if they could make me a customized tenure line position. 
And this, again, is like another senior white man who's like retired Air Force, right? And was just like, okay, I've known you for years. And I know how you work with others. And you know what? We want to make a position to try and hire you. And I didn't end up pursuing that because I had an offer from San Diego State University. But I did find those two things to kind of be like good validation that what happened was not me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. But thank you for sharing it because I think it's important for people to know that we have a really long way to go in our field and other fields too. And I think bias, racism, these are things that come out in the job search process, unfortunately, and you should not feel, and I'm glad that you don't feel that it's anything to do with you and that you are unworthy of a position. And it's really unfortunate that these are things we still have to be talking about in 2022, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. I have no qualms in talking about this stuff because I think a lot of people feel silenced and it can be very easy to pretend like we don't have these issues otherwise. And in my case, I personally don't feel tied to academia. I like it so far, but if there were ever a time where it became apparent that the only way I could stay in CSD as a faculty member is if I was quiet, then I would say goodbye and go do something else with my life. Absolutely. Good for you. (laughs) Just a few more questions here before we wrap up. You talked a lot about all of these different documents and your preparation for interviews and that you applied for many different positions. How did you keep yourself organized with all these different applications and all their expectations and deadlines? What worked for you? So this is a document I'm actually going to turn into a template and stick on my website because no one should have to reinvent the wheel. I made an Excel spreadsheet and I also use this to communicate with my letter of recommendation writers and references where I would lay out by institution the documents I had to turn in, a link to the posting and any specific details, deadlines, what the status was, and things like that. And I found that to be a really helpful and also extremely transparent way to stay in touch with um, everyone writing my letters. Perfect. Well, your website is going to have all of these great resources for people. So I will definitely put that in the show notes. And I'm sure people will be really grateful for all that insight, because I know it takes a lot of time to just figure out what does work and how to keep all of these things straight. My last question for you is what advice do you have for others that are preparing to go on the job market and looking at a research intensive institution? So for anyone else looking at a research intensive institution, I would encourage them to actually reframe it to thinking about what are my research goals, including maybe what are some of the mechanisms I think I need to support my research goals. And then Think about which institutions have that infrastructure, because I know several faculty at teaching schools or at liberal arts schools who have R01s. So clearly those schools have the infrastructure needed to support that level of research activity. Another thing I would suggest doing is looking beyond the department's website and looking at things like the research foundation or institutes or whatever office is tasked with handling research grants and research funding to get an idea of what programming is available at, say, the college or the university level to support faculty who want to apply for grants or to prepare and submit grants um, and things like that. 
And then the third thing is I would suggest that applicants think about how their line of research is going to be feasible, benchmarked against the expectations of the job. And this is something I did very poorly at, at an interview, I think, at a teaching school, where the expectations are very clearly on teaching and clinical preparation. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, I wasn't in the area they were looking for. And they told me this and I was like, okay, fair enough. And then on the other, I did not adjust any of my interview like answers or responses to like departmental expectations. So like to nobody's surprise, I didn't move past the Zoom interview. Yeah, that's so important, figuring out what's important to them. And that strategic plan, I think, can come into play there on their website and figuring out some of those things and just reading the website, talking to people that are either in that department or know people that are in the department to help figure those things out. Is there anything else that you would say to try to figure out what's important to the department? So some departments um, and some schools will post this more transparently than others. So again, thinking back to like research dollars and what you need money for, you can try to get a gauge of how much research funding they're getting. And for me, that was helpful because, so for example, I'm going to purchase a very expensive piece of neuroimaging equipment Obviously, when I go to an institution focused on teaching, they're probably not going to have like based on their like fiscal expenditure, the funding to give me like a ton of money, like six figures to go buy a piece of neuroimaging equipment. So I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Those things are hard to know when you first start out, though. So I'm glad that you shared that. Yeah, no, I think it was like very obvious and just pragmatically, like I missed it completely. (laughs) I'm sure you are not the only one. (laughs) All right. I just have some rapid fire questions for you here that I ask all my guests to wrap up the podcast. The first one is, what is one resource you couldn't live without? Actually, something I found to be really helpful is Asha's arm. It's like the research and mentoring network where they lay out all the programs because those have really been the ones I've interfaced with. And as someone who totally doesn't know anything about research or academia, participating in those programs was a lifeline. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes for others as well. What has been a defining moment in your academic journey? Getting a tenure track offer when I totally didn't expect to. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. What is one thing on your professional bucket list? I would like to open up a center, a community center to provide integrated supports. And this could be working with a community center that already exists that provides supports to specifically BIPOC autistic adults. Wow, that sounds amazing. I I totally believe in you. <laughs> what has been your favorite part about your job as a postdoc? independence. I get to sit and work on my own stuff. um, And I found it to be a really great time for me in terms of productivity and to build out exciting new lines of research. Awesome. And how can people connect with you or learn more about you and your research? I don't use social media for work because I can't figure it out. I really look forward to having a very smart student to maybe help with like social media and whatever else people use Twitter for, um, people can email me or they can look at my website. Yes. And what is your website? 
It is my name. It's www.teresamdrommel.com. I put in the M, which I don't typically use because I think a lawyer in the New York City area is also named Teresa Drama and she has that domain. So don't <laughs> don't email her. <laughs> all right. I will put that in the show notes as well for people to find you and all of the amazing resources that you're sharing on your website. Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your academic job search journey. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this episode. Be sure to check out Teresa's website. She has all those resources up on the site now. I encourage you to follow the podcast so you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. And please consider leaving a review of the podcast. You can find the show notes and transcripts at aboutfromandwith.com and connect with me on Instagram at danicapiper.slp. Until next time, stay humble and kind.